open up the scriptures. We're continuing in our series through Ephesians, but we're entering into a new place in Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, and uh, it will be it'll be a fun uh, a fun process diving into something that uh, we often overlook. Uh, real quick, though, before we dive in there, notice that there is a QR code on the back of chairs, the chair in front of you. If you're in the front row, there's a QR code in the actual weekly bulletin that we give you. Um, reminder, that is your portal into everything uh, life at the Commons LA. You can get into community there. You can sign up to serve there. You can find out more info there. You can become a member there. You can give financially there. Anything and everything is there. We wanted to make it as simple as possible. There are also people all around that will have lanyards on. If you see a leader, you can ask questions there and all of that. So want you to know about that. There's a lot of really encouraging, exciting things that God is doing in community and such. And truth be told, um, we are not uh, a, a like big organization that has everything going on behind the scenes. We are... Uh, primarily volunteer-driven, generosity-led, because that's what we believe Jesus intended to do, to make us a family, a people. And so you're all invited into that and called into that as you grow in Christ. All right, let's dive into Ephesians chapter 6. Um, quick reminder, we called this series through Ephesians the geography of heaven because what Paul is writing to this, these churches in Ephesus is this grand vision of what Jesus has done in his incarnation, his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He was doing nothing less than joining heaven and earth together, than bringing the presence of God and making it accessible to everyday people in a way that it never was prior to his incarnation. And so what Ephesians is instructing us in is what does it look like to suddenly be swept up into life with God here and now in our sometimes, even oftentimes, mundane, everyday life. So we've walked through a lot of different sections of Scripture, and now we're, we're diving into Ephesians 6, where we find out that this term, the heavens or the heavenly places, that refers to the unseen reality behind what we see materially, we're going to see really clearly that God, as Father, Son, and Spirit, is not the only person that exists in the heavenly places. He's not the only person that exists in the heavenly places. There are spiritual beings with agency and effect on our material reality, at work, and attached and woven into the physical dimension. So, let's read Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word to embody together what we believe, that this is God's Word to us, and we need God's Spirit's help. So, I'm going to read this, and then I'm actually just going to invite someone among us, we're a body together, one of you can pray for us, okay? Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. All right, would one of you uh, pray for God's Spirit to, to help us and speak to us and lead us the rest of our gathering? Come on. I, I can be real patient. We're a body together. Thanks, Elise. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. All right. So let's just 
come right out with it at the forefront. What, what do you envision, whether you would claim to be a follower of Jesus or not, what do you envision when you think about Satan and demons? What do you think about? Not a rhetorical question. What comes to mind? Evil, yeah. A pitchfork, yep. Hollywood, yeah, lots of Hollywood depictions, right? Red, yes. <laughs> yeah, anything else? Screw tape letters. Oh, a deep cut from C.S. Lewis. It's a good book. You should read it. It's free online. You can find a PDF. Very helpful. I'll cite it. Anything else? Self-centered fear. Self fear. That is profound. That is, that's good. Yes. Yeah, spiritual realm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't, yes, these are all really good. Sometimes in the back of my mind, kind of my latent assumption, right? The things you think without actively thinking it, the things that you associate with something, in this case, Satan and demons, I imagine like super villains roaming around and having these kind of powers to affect things. And they're like, there's maybe one over there in that bush and like, like doing stuff to try and like disrupt us or you know the sound system goes haywire and we're like get out Satan demons whatever right there are a lot of different assumptions that we have about Satan and demons and many of those assumptions are like partially true um, some of them are twisted and contorted truth some of them are just outright not from scripture like the the thought that Satan rules over hell very common assumption in culture that is not in Scripture. Uh, hell was actually created for Satan to spend eternity. So it was, it was created for Satan, the devil and his angels, Jesus taught, um, to hold him when all of this is rectified. So we need to sift through some things so that we would know truth from error, but also so that we could have really clear vision as we follow Jesus, to be sober-minded about the real presence of not only the Holy Spirit and Jesus our Lord and our Father over us, but also of Satan and demons, okay? We're going to spend some time over the next six weeks walking through these 12 or so verses that end Ephesians because we so need to have clear vision and yet know the authority and the power that we have in Jesus that we would not fear, okay? Sober vision, without fear, and here's the thing, learning to walk in the power that Jesus has given to us over Satan and demons. Okay, you ready? A few things as a preamble. A few things as a preamble. Um, Jesus taught about Satan and demons and uh, exercised, we'll start defining that over the next few weeks, uh, demons from people uh, more than anyone else in Scripture. It was a part of Jesus' operating vision of reality, and Jesus was very smart, not necessarily as a nuclear physicist, but as a, a human image-bearer of God, the eternal Son of God brought into human form, knew and saw God and evil spirits and all of this spiritual realm better than anyone ever. And he taught and believed and embraced this stuff. There's trustworthy authority as we do it. It's not some kooky superstition. Second, it is maturity in our following of Jesus to be aware of spiritual warfare in your life and around us. It is not immaturity. I think there's this assumption or this feeling, oh my gosh, if, if there's spiritual warfare going on in my life, how immature must I be? I mean, how far must I have wandered from God? When actually, the most immature position to be is aloof and unaware of what Satan's trying to do in your life. Okay? Um, I remember, I'll never forget, a year after I met Jesus, uh, I was living in a Christian guy's house, and we saw a demonic uh, manifestation in one of the guys that we were living with. 
and one of the owners of the house was mentoring people, and he came in and he said, um, you know, I spend a lot of time in South America working uh, with a nonprofit, and what I see there is Satan and demons, they kind of walk upright. They intimidate. They, they intimidate with power and fear. But here in Seattle, that's where I was going to school, where I grew up, here they crawl around because we already don't operate with an assumption that they're real and active. They, they seek to go undetected. And so it's not immaturity to realize spiritual warfare is going on in you, around you, whatever it may be. Thirdly, uh, don't fear Satan, fear sin. Sin is his power. He does not have power over us ultimately. Okay? We're going to repeat these three things uh, in brief over the next five weeks as well because they're really, really important. Okay. So, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Uh, I'm going to read it again for us. So we're recentered there, and then we're going to walk through a few places in Ephesians that Paul actually has already mentioned the spiritual realm, and maybe it slipped past us because this is not like some addendum on the end of his letter. We're actually going to see that he's woven it throughout. Okay? So, finally, verse 10, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. In Ephesians, Paul isn't first introducing the topic of spiritual battle or the spiritual realm in chapter 6. He's been weaving it in throughout the letter. Most people in Paul's day, and certainly Israelites, but even non-Israelites, um, had a vision of reality that was immersed in the spiritual realm. So it wasn't some naive thing that they were coming and making sacrifices at the altar of this thing. They thought they were actually manipulating their physical environment by creating spiritual sacrifices. Uh, Michael Heiser, author of a book called The Unseen Realm that is a, a, an extremely helpful um, deep dive into how Scripture paints the picture of the unseen realm, would highly recommend it. Um, he says this, seeing the Bible through the eyes of an ancient reader requires shedding the filters of our traditions and presumptions. They, speaking of back then in time of Jesus, processed life in supernatural terms. Today's Christian processes it by a mixture of creedal statements and modern rationalism. We need to realize that our materialistic, not like our desire for stuff, but literally because we believe what is most real is what we can touch, is a significant blinder to what Jesus is doing all around us. And I'm encouraged as we've devoted this year to learning to pray and to discern the leading of the Spirit that we're actually trying to become more attuned to this very thing. As we do that, guess what we're going to find? We're going to see that Holy Spirit is not the only spirit operating around us. As we seek to pursue and, and embrace prayer, spiritual discernment, certainly the spiritual gifts and, and healing and these things, what inevitably starts to happen, and we started to see this in 2019 when we first realized as a church that God's Spirit was bringing healing and all these gifts to us, was that there's actually activity and work of the demonic among us, okay? This is, this is normal. In Ephesians, Paul has already mentioned this spiritual backdrop. In Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, he, that is God, exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. So we probably thought, oh, heaven, way up there where only God is. That's not what he's speaking about. about. Far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion. Power, ruler, authority, dominion. That's not speaking of the government and, and Caesar or the president or the, the physical rulers, authorities, powers. That's actually speaking to the hierarchy in the unseen realm. Again, in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. 
and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. That's code language for Satan. The spirit now working in the disobedient. Ephesians 3, verse 10. This, speaking of Christ's work in the gospel, is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church, Christ's people in humanity, may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Speaking, Paul is there, he's saying, hey, one of the glorious realities of what God is doing in people is he's showing off his power through these weaklings in comparison to Satan and demons and angelic beings. He is working powerfully in people over these supernatural entities and showing off his manifold wisdom in that process. <clears throat> There's gospel reality embedded in this spiritual work and structure that God is speaking of. And then lastly, in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Paul instructs us practically, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Okay? So, it's not only here that we see this spiritual backdrop. It's also prevalent throughout the Gospels. A couple of passages I want to read for us. Luke 9, 37 through 43 says this. The next day... When they, that is Jesus and a few of his apostles, disciples, came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Just then, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly, he shrieks, and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It scarcely leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied, presumably speaking about the disciples and their inability to drive it out, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you to put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. They were all astonished at the greatness of God. I use this particular story, though there are many, 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 because I think it conveys the complexity of what we're trying to do, incorporating spiritual vision into everyday life. Um, it confronts our modern assumption that the best explanation for symptoms that we would often use to describe as mental unhealth or infirmity, are actually spiritual in nature. Now, that does not mean that every instance of infirmity and mental health is predominantly caused by spiritual beings, okay? So we have a conundrum. How do we discern? The way we discern is by holding the uncomfortable middle ground that is open to all possibilities and seeking dependence on God's Spirit to discern. So, that's why we need six weeks to start this conversation, and we'll do trainings and teachings to try and really um, learn it. There's a mysterious interconnectedness that we need to acknowledge between our bodies, including our brain, our mental cognition, our lived story and our relational connectedness with others, and our soul. You are not a soul trapped in a body that is untouchable by every spiritual force outside. You are much more like pumice stone or a sponge. We are permeable beings, not only permeable to one another in our presence, but permeable to spiritual presences, such as Holy Spirit, and evil spirits. That is why Paul instructs us to be filled with the Spirit. By virtue of faith in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are sealed with Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean you are filled at all times with Holy Spirit. Um, there's an unhelpful 
distinction sometimes that I was taught early on in my Christianity that's not in Scripture. Um, it says, you know, as a Christian, you can be oppressed but not possessed by demons. You know, because uh, a Christian has Holy Spirit in us. Therefore, you know, evil spirits are held off from us. There's a problem with that. The, the problem is that that's not actually in Scripture. There's one word to describe all demonic activity in Scripture, in the New Testament particularly. It's daimonitsomai. That just means demonization. There's a spectrum of power in demonization from kind of pestering temptation or whispering lies to physiological control that's been given over. What's important is being aware and operating within how our spiritual reality really operates, okay? And how we are actually given power and authority in the midst of it. One chapter after what I just read and Jesus' frustration with his disciples, we read this in Luke 10, 17 through 20. After Jesus sent them out with power and authority to heal the sick, proclaim the kingdom, and cast out demons, this is their report. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He said to them, I watched Satan fall like, like lightning from heaven. Look, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he's saying, in me, you have authority over these spirits and demons. You trample on them. They can't hurt you. But don't get proud and arrogant. Let your main source of rejoicing be in your salvation in me, that your names are in the book of life that you are secure. It's as though he gives us a tool in our life following him to love and serve people that as we discern the work of the enemy, we would know, don't be afraid, take up my authority and do work to oppose darkness. So, we are sober-minded about the spiritual reality all around us, including in our own life but we are not afraid. We seek to steward the authority and spiritual power that Jesus has given us. That power is not merely in telling people the truth about Jesus. There is real spiritual authority as those to whom demons must submit. So, with the rest of our time, we're just going we're, we're gonna to unpack a flyover, like the 10,000 foot, 30,000 foot flyover of what Scripture says about this unseen realm that we would be aware of what Paul means when he says our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against all the power of the enemy. Okay, and then over the next weeks, we're going to be like back on the ground, weaving our way through the grass and the terrain. Sound good? All right, so... What are Satan and demons? Uh, getting all the way back to creation, we see that God created the world out of his joyful abundance with his desire for other beings to experience his glory. God created beings out of his overflow, and he enacts his sovereign will through both human and spiritual agency in the world. God's the kind of person that finds more joy and more glory and more power in using other people to do what he wants to do in the world. And I use people to speak of both humans and spiritual beings, okay? So, Satan and demons and angels are created beings to enact the will of God on earth. Satan and demons were angelic beings, uh, not the creator God. They're not like the, the dark side of divinity, they're created and they are supernatural and superhuman, but they are not equal with God. They come from what Scripture refers to as God's divine counsel. 
This is another challenge to our Western lenses where we see God up there kind of with the huge motherboard of earth turning dials and knobs, and then underneath is where all the stuff happens. In God's desire to find more glory in in using other people and beings to rule over the world, there are these weird places in the Bible that talk about him calling together angels and lowercase g gods to decide what to do. Job 1, very clear example, verses 6 and 7. One day, the sons of God, read uh, spiritual beings, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? He said, from roaming through the earth and walking all around it. So God calls a board meeting over all of the cosmos, and all these angelic beings come to him. And they're not him. He is the Lord. But they are little g-gods, okay? Little g-gods in the eyes of humans and nations. Little g-gods, okay? I'm not, we're not pantheists. Got that? All right. In the, the Hebrew Bible, what you actually read is that there are Elohim, which is the common Palestinian Semitic word for God. Uh, and, and God is like a big g Elohim among the Elohim. You tracking? We read about it in Psalm 82. I'm going to read this really briefly. We're not going to dive into it. It's, it's uh, again, one of those weird Bible passages you read through and you're like, never going to understand what that means. Going to keep going. But hopefully this is helping us understand what that means because we had a faulty view from Scripture. Psalm 82, verses 1 and 2. God stands in the divine assembly. Read the little gods that come to him. He pronounces judgment among the gods. So something went wrong. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Verses 6 through 8. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. Read little gods underneath me as the big G God. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Rise up, God. This is the psalmist now. Judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Do you start to see what's going on there? I was taught initially, there's another passage in Genesis early on, I believe it's Genesis 6 or 4, that speaks of the sons of God. I was taught that those were kings human kings early on in my discipleship. I've come to realize that I do not think that that's what is going on there. That's a very contemporary vision reading back into the text. And actually, the vision of the ancient world about the supernatural unseen realm is that God is the creator God, but he has made supernatural beings and he's given them meaningful authority over the material world, over Nations. That's what Psalm 82 is talking about. So, quite literally, there are gods of other nations in that they were entrusted. Those nations were entrusted to the oversight to enact justice and God's will through those spiritual powers. That's why the psalmist says that in the fall of them, read in their rebellion against God, they enacted their power and authority to do injustice, to do evil in the world, to judge unjustly. So, in every nation on earth, there are not merely human actors and agency going on. There are supernatural ones. So... Um, America is not merely run by a government system. There are real spiritual beings with significant supernatural power that affect the world. We might call those the powers, principalities beneath them, rulers beneath them, authorities beneath them. And somewhere along the way, 
probably more so our vision of what Satan and demons really are, these kind of slithering, lurking uh, uh, spirits, fall into that kind of category. But there's a reason that whole cities and whole nations have a propensity towards certain kinds of idolatry. Like L.A., one of the things that shocked me when I moved to L.A. was the obsession with image, both like material um, uh, prosperity, beauty, body image, like more ads for gyms than I've ever seen anywhere in my life, right? There are these things that are common threads of what human beings and whole cultures look to that are, in essence, uh, pseudo-worship. That's what God is judging here. And there are over 40 passages in Scripture that are what we could call these weird passages where we don't understand because we were bringing our preconceived lens about a kind of Western, uh, God is up there and then spirits are like way down here, rather than the unseen realm. So, what does Satan do? What do Satan and demons do? Well, the name devil means adversary. And the name Satan means slanderer. Those are a pretty good description of what he does. He is our adversary. He opposes God and his people. And he's a slanderer. He lies. Those are the two main ways that he's working in the world. To oppose what God does. To oppose our efforts to follow Jesus and love people. And he is a liar. Um, author and pastor John Mark Comer comments on the devil that his original role seems to have been the spiritual formation of human beings through testing. Think of how a teacher tests children to bring them to maturity. But, as we see in the story of Job, he began to drift from his charter and used his skills to tempt human beings into spiritual formation. Originally, test, then to tempt um, scripture also says that God tests human beings, all right? But temptation is something that God does not himself do. Satan sat, maybe, this is John, John Mark Comer again, on God's divine counsel, a group of hand-selected spiritual beings whose job was to collaborate with God's rule over the world, but he chose to rebel against God's rule, to seize the world's throne for himself, and to enlist as many creatures as possible in his violent insurgency. When humans later joined the devil's rebellion, the earth itself fell under his dominion. For thousands of years, Satan has now held sway as the prince of the world, this world, leading vast swaths of human and non-human creatures in their ongoing quest to seize autonomy from God and redefine good and evil as they saw fit. I think that's a helpful summary. So, what does this practically look like? What does this rebellion mean for us? How can we start to be aware from a 10,000 foot level of what they're actually seeking to do? In John 8.44, Jesus has a really helpful summary. He's speaking to the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Two goals that Satan has. Well, really, let's just say one big goal, all right? One big goal and one means. The big goal that Satan has is to spread death in the world. A biblical understanding of death, though, is not merely physical death. He's not seeking to end your life primarily. He is seeking to separate you from the one whose presence is life. God the Father, Son, and Spirit in that divine presence is what we were made for. And as we follow Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Uh, we follow you on the path of life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This vision of life with God is a vision of human life and flourishing in its essence. 
Satan's primary goal is to separate human image bearers from the presence of God. And he doesn't care what you do when you get out from the presence of God. Because he's cut you off from the source of life. So very practically, a human being, bodily living, but separated from Jesus Christ, is living in death. Satan's goal, therefore, is simply to do whatever necessary to get people to turn away from God. His primary tactic is to lie. Is to get us to believe lies about God, about us, about himself. Galatians says that he, he hides himself as an angel of light. And Jesus here says that his primary tactic is to lie. That's how he murders. He's the father of lies. Just like in the garden, he told Eve and Adam, did he really say that? You're not going to die. You'll be made like God. You see how that's, that's an overt lie because God himself had said, in the day you eat of this fruit, a.k.a. when you disobey me, you will die. Now, we need a little bit of help understanding why God's law, His moral commands, leads to death when we disobey. It is not first and foremost because we are guilty and immoral. Not first and foremost. That is a part of disobeying God. It is immoral. But God gives us His law so that we can dwell with Him. That's why you go back and you read the giving of the law in places like Deuteronomy and Exodus. And he says, as you obey me, you will be blessed. He's not saying like, yeah, I'm, I'm up here seated on my throne and I get really happy when people just do what I say. He's saying, I want a people to dwell among. And this is how you dwell among me. You don't have other gods. Because you're facing me. You see me. You live with me. My glory shines on you. You find wholeness and security and a fortress and foundation and joy and power as you're facing me and living with me. Don't go over there. This is the life of blessing. But when we disobey God, what we're actually doing is turning away from Him and entering into the darkness. So what we experience is what the Old Testament calls cursing. We are cursed. It's not hocus pocus or voodoo. It is the, the if-then effect of disobeying the commands that bring God's blessing in His presence. There is only blessing or cursing. You can live under the blessing of God, or you can live under the curse of being apart from God. You see how that works? So God's law is relational. He's saying, follow me, live with me. Disobedience is also relational. So as we hear God's word and we think about sin, one of the big stumbling blocks we have is we think that it's just moral. Like, well, Jesus already forgave me. I could sin a little bit. And we fail to see that refusing to follow Jesus is to follow Satan. There is no neutral ground. There is no just being human. That's why Ephesians 2 verse 2 says that the spirit of disobedience is under the prince of the power of the air. Satan rules darkness, and Satan rules separation from God, and Satan rules, well, uh, that wouldn't be entirely accurate. He doesn't rule over death, but he causes death by his lies. Okay. You tracking with me? That's his primary goal, death. His primary tactic, lies. So, he spreads lies. Think about a passage of scripture that you find very hard to believe. Uh, very common one. Um, God, oh, what does Romans 8.28 say? I'm blanking. This 
Yes, God works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That is truth. Think about how your lived life this last week might cast some doubt on that promise. Um, I got sick this week. God, why would you let me get sick? I thought I'm living a life of blessing. I'm trying to obey you. The sickness is actually hindering me from serving you. And there are a few people that I've had to cancel meetings with where I was going to try and help them. And then that, that experience leads to the question, wait a second, my experience and God's truth, I sense some conflict. There's some friction there. Satan would come along, demons, whatever, would come along and say, yeah, God, God can't turn sickness to good. He could snap his fingers and you'd be healed. He could have protected you. Well, maybe there are some circumstances where God does good. And then there are some circumstances where he just leaves you to yourself. And the door's cracked open for believing a lie. And eventually, over time, the door's blown open with circumstances that confirm that little lie and convince us of a big lie. So, here's, here's another thing. Um, emotions are indicators of the truth or lie that is under the surface. Really helpful tool. Emotions are so uh, good and helpful. There's not a lot that we can do about controlling them, but we can be aware of them. And it's healthy to be aware of them. But think about something for me, with me for a sec. If someone came up to you and said something really hard for you to hear, you might feel very angry because you had suspicion about them and their ill will towards you. And now they're doing something that seems to confirm what you had believed under the surface about them and whether they're for you or against you. Now say that same exact phrase is said by your best friend that nothing on earth could convince you that they hate you. You would not feel the same anger the same exact thing was spoken to you, and yet the belief about them under the surface led to directly how you felt. Truth and lies and emotion are directly tied together. One, though, is the caboose on the end of the train, and one's the engine. If we mix it up, we get it all wrong. So here's the thing, emotion never dictates what's true. For the life of a Christian, emotion never dictates what's true. It is revealing of what you are experiencing. And then you get a deal with whether there are truth or lies or oftentimes a mixture in that process. You see those connections? Oftentimes, some of the most profound spiritual warfare that I have seen has been predominantly conveyed in extreme emotion that's blown out of proportion for the circumstances. Not always. I know there are other reasons for that. But oftentimes, what is discovered is that there is spiritual force supercharging what's going on underneath through a small lie. So, what do we take away from this? Well, first of all, we cannot forget that Jesus has defeated Satan and demons. They are a defeated foe. One of the most common analogies, because it's so helpful, is, is the D-Day to V-Day distinction. In World War II, June, July 9th? June 6th, D-Day. The Allied forces land at the beach of Normandy, and they storm Europe, and they take a stronghold. That was the day that the, the evil forces of the Nazis and the Axis powers were defeated. It was inevitable from there. But V-Day didn't happen for however long afterwards that was. I didn't write it down. Um, D-Day was Jesus' death and resurrection. 
actually we should go back and say incarnation, temptation, teaching, death, and resurrection, the full picture of his life. V-Day is his second coming. It's when he comes and he sets all things right. In the meantime, between D-Day and V-Day, he entrusts to us his power and authority. He's the one who has defeated Satan and demons, though. I'm going to read a passage for us. Colossians 2. Memorize this. Verses 13 through 15. This is the key to all spiritual warfare. All of it. Right here. A key. Trying not to speak in absolute so much. And when you, verse 13, were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. There it is. You were alive physically, but you were dead spiritually. Cut off from God. Alienated in darkness from Him. He made, a lot, made you alive with Him, Christ, and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of death with its obligations, that which was against us and opposed to us, and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. There's our language again. The spiritual powers. And disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Him, that is Christ. Excuse me. Right there, you have almost all you need in the battle against Satan and demons in everyday life. There is nothing that stands between you and God any longer because of Jesus. All you have is endless mercy and grace offered to you. Now, that doesn't mean that he blesses you no matter what decisions you make. It means that in a moment of turning to him, he will always receive you, and you will have life and life to the full poured out for you. Nothing can stand between you. Secondly, all of the enemy's previous demands over you have been broken by Jesus. So sometimes you hear people say, I'm so unworthy that all of this bad, evil abuse, I deserve it. In Jesus, that is a lie that has actually been broken. Where sometimes people have done things so horrible that that lie sounds very believable. But in Jesus, every one of those if-then implications are untrue. Our identity, then, is secure through our union to Christ. Lastly, in verse 15, this is what Jesus did to Satan and demons. He disarmed them. It's like being held hostage with a water gun now. He doesn't have power anymore. He's a defanged lion. He disarmed them because their lies have a more powerful truth to oppose them. And he disgraced them publicly. Not only are they weak, they actually have been exposed and shamed by the conqueror in Jesus. And now we have been brought over them in Christ. That's why Jesus said you will tread on serpents and scorpions. They are shamed. Even though they have power, you are more powerful still. They have been defeated and all their strategy bent back over them to defeat them. And he, got his God, triumphed over them in Jesus. Okay? So, we don't fear. We see with sober-mindedness. And we learn to steward this power that has been given to us. So, uh, maybe you're here and if you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the invitation that what you have assumed to be normative in everyday human life is not normative as a follower of Jesus. That aloneness, that addiction, that these things that Christians still struggle with, uh, we, still we yet have hope through. And so the invitation to Jesus is an invitation to turn to him and place your hope in him and learn to follow him that you too could see the way that he sees and steward the authority that he has given us, that we could serve in the world, out there, in the pushing back of darkness as his ambassadors of light. And so I would encourage you, if this is something that you're even open to, go to the prayer team, talk to the friend who invited you, and say, hey, if Jesus is real, if this is true, I want in. I want, I want to experience him and know this reality.
And they would love to pray over you that Jesus himself would actually prove his presence around you and communicate his presence to you. Christian, a few questions for you. Living ready for warfare. Are you wrestling at all? Does your life feel like a wrestling? Um, Because if not, maybe you're just pinned down. And Paul's command here is is to wrestle. He says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our, Our primary wrestling is not with the people around us that might frustrate us. A boss, a family member, a child, a spouse. The battle is not with them. The wrestling is with the spiritual forces all around. And so prayer is one of the primary ways that we wrestle. Truth and speaking truth to one another as a people is one of the ways that we wrestle. Exposing and examining the ways that we believe lies about people and ourselves and God is a way that we wrestle. Living in the tension is the wrestling. And he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's not wrestling that's fatalistic. It's wrestling in hope. Uh, Number two, flee from sin. Run from it. Run from sin. I don't want any of us to be afraid of Satan and demons, but to be terrified of sinning. Because it is darkness. And we'll see in future weeks that it's actually giving Satan permission into our life. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, do not give the devil an opportunity. Run from sin. Running from sin means confessing it to God, walking and confessing, naming it with brothers and sisters in a discipleship group, over at the prayer team, whatever it might be, get it out into the light, and you'll find that you are swept up into the light. And then lastly, cultivate faith over fear. We are so tempted to sin and to be unfaithful to Jesus when we project the cost of that faithfulness into the future. And we experience fear, and we're held by it. And Hebrews 2 says that Satan's primary power over us is the fear of death. So we live protecting our future and moderately, if at all, faithful in the present. Live faithful to love God and love people wherever God has stationed you today and tomorrow and entrust your future to